while at the same time concealing truth from those who are against it. It ends up being a striking way that Jesus teaches, and it leaves some people in darkness and gives more light to those who embrace the light. And at least in that, there should be a good warning for all of us to be eager to hear God's word and to be open-hearted to it rather than closed off to it. Because in fact, the Bible seems to indicate, in parables at least, that if your heart is disinclined to be receptive, you actually see less light. And if you are open-hearted to it, you are more able and given more light uh, by the grace of the Spirit. So we're going to look in chapter 13 here. At the end, Jesus has this little uh, snippet. Uh, Whether we call it a parable or not is probably not important, but it seems parabolic in its, its nature. If you look down with me in verse 51 and 52, Jesus says so much in so few words. It's probably a good lesson for long-winded pastors there. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus says these things, he is making a declaration about what discipleship is. He, he is defining for his disciples what a true follower is. And he does it in ways. In fact, when I first read this, I was thinking, boy, I probably ought to include this in another passage because there's not a lot there. There's actually a lot here. Um, I, I think we miss most of what Jesus is saying. So let me just back up and get a running start at, at the concept of discipleship here. Throughout Matthew, Jesus is going to use the idea of being a disciple as synonymous with being what we would use the word for being a Christian. And, and here's where we part company with Jesus, at least culturally. When we think of what a Christian is, a lot of times we simply identify it as someone of belief. They believe this. But in Matthew, when we look at what it is to be a disciple, again, if we're going to see that as consistent with Christian, it has not only belief with it, but a lot more. There's much more um, expectation of a disciple than we might have of a Christian. And so if there's a definition that needs to move, it's ours. We need to align our definition with the definition that the Lord has. As you go through Matthew, he ends with this final declaration in Matthew 28, where Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, and he commands them. And he tells them, he says, go and make. You cannot possibly do that if you do not know what a disciple is, according to Jesus. Not only that, if we're going to see it as consistent with Christianity, then as we define disciples we actually get a true definition of what a Christian should be. And sometimes when that happens, we feel the conviction. I mean, when I look in the scriptures and see uh, what a dad is supposed to look like, or a godly man is supposed to look like, or a pastor is supposed to look like, I, I feel the Holy Spirit move me or kind of put his finger on stuff where I'm falling short of the ideal that God lays out I need to be pursuing. Have you ever maybe experiences in life when people start, start to define. We're, we're perhaps in a, a cultural moment where we can do this really well. Symptoms. So when you define symptoms, it usually identifies maybe a problem, maybe a good thing, though. It doesn't have to be bad. I know you're all thinking of COVID right now. And, and so there's this list of like 13 symptoms. 
And if you have these, you might have COVID. And so you go through them and, and you can check them off. Of course, the problem is that you could have many other things. And, and so there's this confusion about what it is. But, but the way those characteristics work, if you have enough of them, it's a fairly good certainty that you can diagnose yourself. Well, here Jesus defines discipleship. Let me just encourage you to come to this passage with an open heart because I think the Holy Spirit will probably do two things to us this morning. Confirm and convict. So, so when I read qualifications or identity marks of a, of a believer, the Lord often uses those to give me rest that I am a believer, but also kind of kicks me in the pants and says, get going the right direction a little bit more aggressively, a little bit more enthusiastically, with a little bit more joy. That's, that's why God does this, is both to define and motivate. So therefore, I think marks um, that define a disciple in this passage so a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who experiences a radical shift in thinking. They experience a radical shift in thinking. If you look in verse uh, 51, he says, have you understood these things? They say, that's a pretty audacious claim. Since several times in the passage, they're like, hey, what do you mean? But I think the point is, is after Jesus has given the parables and explained it, generally speaking, they get what he's saying. They understand what Jesus has said to them. And so then he says, if you understand this, verse 52, therefore every scribe who has been trained. That word trained is that word disciple. In fact, in almost every other instance in Matthew, except for I think one, it's translated disciple or to disciple someone or to be a disciple Throughout the, throughout the whole four Gospels, that word is consistently translated disciple. I think if you go to the New American Standard translation, it would say, they are a disciple of the kingdom. So we come here, it says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained. How many of you self-identify as a scribe? <laughs> like a scribe? Who even uses that word anymore? But, but. But in fact, his point is, is that all the, those who understand the message of, of the parables, the message of the gospel, the hope of the coming kingdom, the identity of Jesus as a king, is in fact by trade a scribe. Which should lead all of us to go, so what's a scribe? If I'm a scribe, what's a scribe? A, a scribe is identified usually with two attributes. They are someone who has learned and someone who then teach us. So often we think of a scribe as someone who's really been informed, who's been taught, who understands a lot, and then we stop. But the point of a scribe in Jesus' day is there's someone who's been learned and taught, and then they communicate to some other uh, student of theirs. They, they hand it off. They teach others. So if you define a scribe that way, Jesus has identified his followers as those who have learned the truth. And now reproduce the truth in others. So, so there's, a, there's an information issue that Jesus is pressing on here. Do you know this? Yes. Then you must teach others this truth as well. It's not enough just to be a learner. And I think one of the plagues of the American church is that we are learners who are never teachers. And that, that's all of us. All of us are to be teachers. And sometimes this is nothing more than a mother teaching her five-year-old about who Jesus Christ is. But she is to be a teacher. And in that moment, when her five-year-old is beginning to put the pieces of the world together as in, 
This earth is God's, not ours. You are made by God. She's teaching. I find it amazing how simplistic and honest the faith is of a little child who's been taught those things. They would have no problem after Christmas saying, God made this toy. Now, some of you, you laugh at that because it's way more complex than that. But could you deny that that is true? Did God make that toy? He absolutely did. Not directly, but he made all the material. He made the mind that thought it up. He made the hands that assembled it. He made all of the materials and the whole process, including the people. He made all of the stuff that delivered that to the child. He made it all. We should have no problem declaring God the maker of all, including Happy Meal toys and mosquitoes. There are some things that we wonder why he's made them because they're an affliction on every person. So there's a radical shift in thinking. That is, these disciples have been trained and instructed, and all of God's people have been trained and instructed, and now are to be teaching and communicating that truth. But it doesn't just stop there. They experience a radical shift in thinking, so there's a radical shift in values. And this is probably where we get it wrong most often. So if you're a disciple of the kingdom, this phrase is used one other time as a disciple of Jesus. The point is, you are committed to this thing. So you are deeply committed to Jesus would be the point in the other usage. In this usage, what are you deeply committed to? Everyone who's been, or or, or every scribe has been what? Discipled for the kingdom. Or has become a disciple of the kingdom would be the point. That is, we are someone deeply committed to the, what's the kingdom? We've talked about this frequently in the last few weeks. I'm going to give you the three markers of a kingdom again. A kingdom includes a, a king, and, okay, so we're going to get a little dicey on this one. So let me just give them to you. I'm going to use a ruler who is ruling over his people in his realm. I just figured ours would help you. Ruler, ruling, in a realm. That's what a kingdom is. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, and this, this ought to give you great hope and also great motivation. Seek first the kingdom. Now God tells us to seek first the kingdom, and if we do that, what does he promise to do? Supply our needs. He says he will add all these things, specifically talking about caring for our lives and our food and our clothing. That's what Matthew 6 identifies. And so Jesus says, God has got this covered, but he has called you to pursue his kingdom above your own pursuits. In other words, it's a transition of values for every disciple. You're not just simply instructed in truth. You are emotionally, purposefully committed to pursuing that truth. It's not simply fact. It's a new value system that drives you. And we are committed to the ruler, Jesus Christ. We are committed to obeying him and submitting to his rule. And we are hoping and praying for the administration of his kingdom to come. We had to be longing for the kingdom of Christ. We had to desire it. This morning, we just simply read 
in Isaiah 25, how, how Christ, when he comes, is going to abolish death. Doesn't that just make your heart want that day? Watching politicians and health administrators run around like chickens with their head cut off, and just scrambling everywhere and making a mess of everything. Because, in, and not in a bad way, they want people not to die. We should agree with that. Jesus' kingdom is a place where people don't die. That is not a bad thing to want life. And in heaven, not one person will die ever. We had to long for the establishment of the eternal kingdom of Christ. The establishment of his throne where he'll reign and govern his people. We had to long for those things and we ought to live as citizens of that kingdom. So, so there's a radical shift in value. So if we're stepping back and asking the question here, what is a true disciple of Christ? It is someone who is instructed, who knows God's truth, and then values God's truth so that it shapes the way they live. I've mentioned before, I don't have any um, massive existential and emotional relationship to math. And by that I mean when you tell me that 2 plus 2 is 4, I don't start crying. <laughs> I don't get bubbly and excited. I wonder why you're telling me this. But on the other hand, if you were to tell me that, in fact, my great-grandfather was not the one I thought he was my great-grandfather, but he's just recently passed away, and so I find out I have a different grandfather, and he's just passed away, and his name happens to be Warren Buffett, and I'm his sole heir. All of a sudden, I'm very existentially connected to math. I want to know what numbers come after my inheritance. With Scripture, sometimes, Christians, we can be so numb to the claims and the promises of Christ that it is like a high schooler hearing 2 plus 2 is 4. There's no emotional desire, affection, or commitment to it. It does nothing to our soul. The point of a disciple is that they not only know the truth, but the truth transforms them, shapes them, and they love it. I think oftentimes this is, this is where we fail in worship. We have often built the crutch of music that amps us up rather than building theology that generates the joy. Now, you can't disassociate them. I, mean, I do not want to try to sing joyfully to the Lord with funeral music. That just like sucks the joy out of the room. But if I have music that amps me up and, and I don't care about the theology, we cannot be deceived thinking God is worshipped. Because the disciple is transformed by the message and the ministry of the king. And that's the ministry that he communicates. I want you to notice the logic of this passage because I think it's embedded but missed. At least on first read or second or third read maybe even. It says, therefore, every scribe, notice the way the verbs are linked, to here, linked here, who has been trained. Every scribe is already a disciple. In other words, value actually precedes truth. So maybe I could say it this way, embracing Christ as king actually leads the way to understanding more of him. We usually get it the reverse. When we want to see someone saved, we truth them to death. 
You know what the real heart issue is with most people coming to Christ? They don't want a king. They want to be king. They do not want to turn from serving self. They are committed to themselves. This passage seems to indicate that I must first embrace the king and submission to him, or the truth remains locked to me. And I cannot open that door without submission to the king and his word. And perhaps as parents, maybe we should be careful. As disciple makers, we should be careful that we do not simply minimize the gospel to accepting truth claims, but demand that people understand it's not simply truth. You must embrace with your heart the claims of Christ or you are not his disciple at all. You cannot get a disciple who knows the truth but does not embrace it. And it means every Bible scholar, no matter how refined in Greek and Hebrew, no matter how read in Latin and and the theology texts of the uh, ancient church, if they do not embrace Jesus Christ, is somehow cut off and handicapped and lame in their theology. And likewise, if you do not embrace Jesus Christ with your heart, you are not his disciple. This both calls us on a pattern of how to disciple others, but also may warn some of you. If you do not yet embrace Christ, you are not his. And he does not embrace you. The third defining mark of discipleship here is that the disciple diligently stores precious truth. Okay, so there's a radical change in what they know. There's a radical change in their value system or how they think about what they know and how it drives them. And then third, there's a diligent storing of God's precious truth. If you look in this, now someone who knows the truth and and is a teacher of the truth, who's embraced the path of discipleship, is this. He's a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. He's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Okay, so this disciple who knows the truth and loves the truth does what with the truth now? It says he brings out of his treasure. Jesus has just used this idea of treasure in chapter 12, where he says, our heart is like our storehouse of treasure, and out of it, we bring good or evil. Let me read the text to you. It's it's, uh, Matthew 12, 34 and 35. He says, you brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure, there's that idea again, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So the point of that text is that our heart is like our treasure storehouse. And what we bring out of it is not only what we value, it's what we know and who we are. And so what would you expect out of a person whose heart is filled with evil? What comes out of their mouth? An expression of evil, even if it's cloaked and sugar-coated with good. Ultimately, it's evil. It's going to be cancerous to people around them. It's going to be toxic and hurt people. On the other hand, if a person is truly good, what comes out when you push on them? Good. My dad always had a phrase um, when he talked about people who are just sweet, sincere people. He's like, they're pure gold. The deeper they get scratched, the more pure the gold. 
And of course, the point is, is that when we get tried, when we get pressed, when our family is on us, when life is tough, what comes out is not controlled by the expectations of others. It's usually a very honest reflection of what we're like on the inside. And sometimes that's very embarrassing. The disciple does what out of the treasure of his heart? Look again in the text. He says, he, he brings out he's, his discipleship in the kingdom of heaven. He's like a massive house who brings out of his treasure. So what has he put in? Okay, what he treasures is truth. In fact, we're going to kind of get ahead of ourselves on our fourth point, but that's all right. I just think for the sake of, of following the text, you need to see it. What is new and what is old refers to the revelation of God. That is the new revelation and the old revelation of God. We would think maybe just simply in terms of testaments. I think it's a little artificial, but it helps. That is, we bring out new truth and previously revealed truth. And if Christ is the the hinge point and the chronology of that, we basically would divide it in terms of testaments. That is, we bring out truth rooted in the Old Testament text or truth rooted in the New Testament text. Not that they're different truths, and we'll get to that in just a moment, But here's the point. Where does this come from? Where does discipleship stem from? This man brings out of his own treasure. He is a storehouse of theological and scriptural truth that he is personally living and personally knows. He diligently stores it where? Within his own life. He knows it, not just intellectually, he lives it so that when he's interacting with God's people, his discipleship is not merely just do this. There's a reason pastoral qualifications are given in Scripture. How hard is it to follow someone who's a hypocrite? There is a reason that people have a hard time following COVID restrictions when none of the leaders are doing it. There is a reason why a pastor who's getting wealthy and calls everyone to follow Christ despite poverty has a hard time with any authenticity in front of his people. There's a hard time for a parent who's an angry, yelling, foul-mouthed parent to scold his children for saying bad words. Where did he learn them from? Dad? What is that child going to do as soon as dad's not around and not scolding him for saying bad words? What's the child going to do? He's going to say the bad words. I had numerous friends who would, I should say numerous. I had some friends who would smoke despite the fact that their dad said not to smoke. Do you know why almost all of them smoked? Dad smoked. So the identity of masculinity and goodness was smoking. Dad says don't smoke. Well, dad says, says don't smoke all day long and smokes all day long. The kid smokes. So the person who's truly discipled in God's word knows it, his mind and heart are filled with it. He is committed to the value system of the kingdom and then when he engages others, it is from that wealth and treasure of his own learning he is able to disciple. Now remember, most people in the New Testament era didn't have cell phones. I know that's a shocker for you. Most of you, like if we turn to scripture passage, you're like... (laughs) 
I mean, I, I, I just snicker at like the way our world has changed. When we do testimonies, it used to be a piece of paper. About half the time now, it's cell phones. No criticism is leveled at anyone in here for either the paper or the cell phone. I'm just saying, we've changed. Now you tell a group of people, hey, look this up in the Bible. You could be at a Bible study and half of them are on their phones. It's not a problem, but the, the, the text here was written in a time in which people did not walk around with scrolls. And scrolls were not small. You know, some of them were like 12 to 18 inches wide, and then like rolls like this. They had to know the scripture in order to reproduce it in others. And scripture had to know them and change them and transform them so they could say, follow me. Discipleship has never been something that Christ reduced to just truth systems. If all we do in discipleship is get people to read a book and fill out some questions and answers, and they never get exampled for them, what godliness looks like, what following Christ looks like, what going through trials looks like, we are not actually discipling. Discipling demands life lived in community. I think one of the ideas that we maybe just kind of fly by, I, I think a couple of you caught it, is he actually identifies it as a treasure. Here, just to go back a few parables, he talks about these two examples. A man who finds a pearl that's worth selling everything he has to purchase the pearl. And then he gives a similar analogy with a man who finds a treasure in a field and goes and sells everything he has to buy the field and get the treasure in the field. The truth you hold, the truth you know, in your heart and soul, the truth you live is to be considered precious. And it doesn't lose value by giving it away. I mean, I personally like having lots of money. I've not experienced that a lot. But usually when I give it away, I lose it. Right? Like, I have $500 in my pocket. I give it away. You know what I don't have in my pocket anymore? $500. The truth is like that. I can have the gospel within my soul. It can be shaping and transforming me. And I give it away. I speak it to others. I encourage others. I move them to see and to value Christ. And the gospel's not grown less valuable, but more valuable in my life. It is to be treasured. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 has this amazing analogy. It says that God has given us this treasure, and he has given it to us, even though we are simply vessels of clay so that the surpassing excellency of God would be seen in that. It is this thought, that you and I are garbage vessels that are fragile and easily broken. But the message we hold is eternal and precious. In 150 years, you'll all be dust, and the gospel will still be moving in this world. It is more precious than us. It is more lasting than us. It is what shapes us and moves us. And so God entrusts to us clay vessels that are easily broken, will not last long. We are temporary. He's given to us this treasure because even a temporary vessel carries. Maybe the analogy in our world would be like a soda can. Any of you like reuse those things, rinse them out, put them in your cupboards? Like, 
I just had this Diet Coke, but boy, this can. No, the can is simply a vessel to get you the drink. And then what's done with it? It's discarded. Because what's precious about the soda? You go to a vending machine and spend 75 cents and you get a soda. What's valuable, the can or the soda? That's Jesus' analogy in 2 Corinthians 4 for you. You're the throwaway can. The gospel's the treasure. Now, the point isn't that God doesn't care about you. The point is that God has entrusted the most precious message ever given on this planet to us. Would you trust you with the most priceless treasure man has ever known? Would you trust a message about holiness to you? Would you trust a message whose integrity about redemption from sin has been entrusted to you who struggle with sin all the time? This is why we ought to be pressed to pursue the message in shaping and transforming us. At the same time, none of us has been totally conformed to the message, have we? We are all weak vessels carrying a treasure of the message of Christ and redemption from sin, message about the king. We possess an incredible treasure. Store it. Let it change you and shape you. And then speak of it often. Finally, the disciple diligently serves God's truth to people. Diligently serves God's truth to people. I struggle with analogy here. Jesus' analogy serves well, so I'm just kind of stealing it and reshaping it to today's culture with the idea of servers. But if you were to go to someone's house and they were to take care of you, we might have the idea of a pantry. It's like you, you show up and they're like, oh boy, wow, welcome. They're not ready for you at all. And so they have to assemble a meal for you. So they go into their refrigerator and their pantry and they pull out food that they have ready. That's the point. And so maybe they have to assemble it or cook it, but they have food. Usually, most homes have some food, right? If I go to your house today, you're like, oh, wait, we don't have anything. No, you have some food. We all have food, and the point is this disciple is they have, they have information and truth and understanding of the gospel message about the kingdom. They have that stored up. And so when you interact with them, what do they do with you when you need to hear this message? From their, from their pantry, their treasure house, their treasure room, they pull out and deliver to you the food you need. So that's the point of that out of this treasure, they give what is new and what is old. So what is new for Jesus and his disciples? Well, there's a new era of salvation. The Old Testament said there is a Messiah coming. Jesus said, and he's me. The Old Testament had a sacrificial system where innocent lambs are killed for the sins of the people. And Jesus says that he is the lamb. John identifies him as the lamb that's come who's going to give life. And the whole New Testament preaches he's the lamb that's slain for the sins of many. So again, if you'll notice what the text says, it's really easy to miss, but super interesting. What comes first? Jesus says, he brings out of his treasure what is new. Now that's actually, generally I think, surprising. 
Because he doesn't start with the Old Testament. If we're going to just break it down that way, he says what we actually give first is the New Testament. It shouldn't be a surprise that in the church today, generally speaking, our focus is on the New Testament. Because it is in the New Testament, we have explicit teaching and preaching of who Jesus Christ is. We have an identification of our Lord and Savior. It's not that we ignore the old, because what does the next word say? We bring out what is new and what is old. So we don't, we don't ignore the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament that puts shape to our salvation and identifies him as Jesus Christ. It is the New Testament that tells us he's coming again to set up his kingdom and redeem us from this world of sin. And so we look at both the Old and New Testament, but when we serve people, we don't have to point to the shadowy promises of the Old Testament. We can point to the promise fulfilled in the New. But the Old Testament is so valuable and precious that shapes our confidence and our theology of who God is. It's in the Old Testament we see the inception of sin and the fall of humanity and the promise of redemption. From the very first moment of sin, God promises salvation. And so when he delivers salvation in Jesus Christ, we see the promise fulfilled, and that's valuable for our faith. But someone could truly be saved without the Old Testament. I do not think you could truly be saved without the New. If we were to subtract all of the New Testament theology, I do not think you could be saved. So we are to be experts at serving what people need, and what they need is the message of Jesus Christ, God's grace and promise fulfilled. Just thinking through a few verses here, every once in a while we um, hear interesting questions about, do people have to know this to be saved? Do they have to do this to be saved? Do they have to understand this to be saved? And the answer depends on what they say, on what they ask. But I would suggest that at least Hebrews 5 tells us this, that there is an identification of those who can only have milk, and those who can have solid food. Now, the, the analogy is taken from everyday life. You do not give a four-week-old infant grapes or gumballs or steak. You could kill them. You give little four-week-old babies milk. Adults can also eat milk, drink milk, or gumballs and meat and grapes. Or they can eat solid food. But Hebrews identifies that those who are mature, having exercised their senses to discern good and evil, are, are able to have solid food. So sometimes you get excited about a theological truth that takes a little bit of, of, of muscle and maturity to understand and to digest, and it's not something that's super enjoyable or easy for people to understand. You don't have to disciple the brand new baby to be where you are on that issue. On the other hand, sometimes we act like milk is to be scorned, as though it's bad. Everyone who has a baby is really thankful for milk or formula, which is synthetic milk, right? It's just a way to get milk, food in liquid form to a baby as disciples. I think Ephesians 4 says this, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, there's a wisdom in discipling others 
to knowing where they're at in the progress. Uh, you would probably be familiar with the name Vince Lombardi. It's reported that after a bad loss, a very uncommon thing for the Green Bay Packers of that age, very common in the 80s, but in the 60s with Vince Lombardi, they won and won and won again. So they lose this game. They play horribly. The next day at practice, Vince Lombardi walks out in the circle of all these players who are recovering from wounded pride and everything else, and he grabs a football, he holds it in front of the guys, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. You know, there's wisdom in knowing what men and women need at any given moment. And it's part of the task of God's people who are followers of Christ to be ready at a moment's notice to give a word appropriate to where, they're, where, where the audience is. If you're discipling a young person, a young believer, or a mature person and a mature believer, you give the words they need, which requires you to have been diligent at storing it up, which requires you to have a life transformed by the values of being a disciple because you've understood and embraced the truth of God's word. Discipleship is not something that happens over a 10-week book study. It is not something that happens through osmosis. You just gather around the church and you have this kind of friendly relationship with it. You show up a little bit here and there. No, discipleship is a committed, faithful instruction and, and I'm going to use a, a big word here, inculcation. Think almost like um, brainwashing. That is Our goal is not simply to say, hey, here's the truth, take it or leave it. Our goal is to see you embrace the truth, to theologically be committed to it, to heart and soul buy in. And for us to want something less than that is for us to love you less than we should. No math teacher begins math in, 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 let's say, first grade or second grade and goes, two plus two is four. And Billy goes, no, it's not. And teacher says, oh, well, you know what? You can believe what you want to believe, Billy. That's a bad teacher, right? My brothers were like that, except they would do it with my allowance. <laughs> for real, I would trade pennies and nickels. Actually, I would trade dimes away for pennies and nickels because my brothers lied to me about what values were. See, that was an act of not loving. The goal of the church is to say, hey, this may not make sense, but it is true. And we are obligated, because we know it's true, to do nothing less than to get you to buy in with us. Because we love you too much to say less. And our lives should preach it. Our hearts should invest in knowing it and being transformed by it. So that we can help others to come with us as we follow Jesus. This is not simply some high-tier Christianity. This is the essence of it. And if you are not living it, you need to get going. You need to get after it. And I think all of us should have a heart that's both convicted and encouraged. I can remember in elementary school running the mile. There's always this guy that beat me, Brandon Greminger. Isn't that funny how you remember names like that? And I would always chase him. Listen, sometimes you, you need to recognize we're in a continual, perpetual race we're running. And we need to be pursuing and chasing after 
the people that are ahead of us. They're our disciplers. And sometimes you're chasing them for a lap because they're a fantastic spouse to a really hard husband. And you're a wife who's struggling because you think your husband's a little bit rough. And you're like, man, they really show me how to sprint in this lap. And so you follow them there, and they're your discipler on how to be a sweet wife. Or maybe you find someone who's really effective at communicating the gospel, and you're like, man, I need to get better at that. And so you find someone, and you let them disciple you. And as you do that, you'll probably find some people are like tailing you, saying, hey, can you show me how you are a good wife or a good evangelist? God has not called you to be a passive Christian. Every Christian has been totally transformed by the truth. Their value system has been turned upside down. They now love Christ more than themselves. They are storing up an understanding of what it means, not just intellectually, but practically to be like Christ. And then they call others to come with them to follow Christ. I think it's a great thought as we begin the new year. I could just punch Bible reading. How many of you read the Bible enough? Like, who's claiming that, right? I pray enough. Like, yeah, I got it. No one, no one feels that. And I think it'd be really discouraging for us to think that way. Instead, let's just all commit to this year being a disciple and a disciple maker for the glory of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, thank you for your brief and challenging definition of what a disciple is. And I pray that you would build in our church people who look like this, who follow the pattern of Christ, whose lives demonstrate what it is to be Christ today, that they call others to follow them as they follow Christ, and that your church would be transformed because its people have been transformed to be like Christ. Father, if you do this in your church, we know that it will bring glory to your name and that Jesus as king will be enthroned and surrounded by people who praise his name. So we pray that you would do this work in us, that you'd be gracious enough in our church to shape us to be more like Jesus this year. We ask this because we want him to receive glory, and we do so on the basis of his name. Amen.